Hello, and welcome to Cocktails, Mocktails, and Crime. We're your hosts, Jill, Gracia, Dave, Don, and Steve. I'm surprised that went as well as it did, to be totally honest, <laughs> because this week we are half remote again, So, and it's really early. So, Gracia, I don't know if you want to talk about what we would have been drinking, but because we don't have hardcore problems just yet, we're not actually drinking <laughs> so early in the morning. <laughs> hey, speak for yourself. I was about to say that. I made myself a drink so I could talk about it. <laughs> okay, never mind. We're low all over my Cheerios. I mean, I only have had four sips of it right now because I made myself a BLT as well, so I didn't get drunk at 8 a.m. But um, it is the same drink that I posted on uh, Facebook. It is the Valerie's <clears throat> Kitchen Recipe for Blackberry Margaritas. So if you want to look for the recipe, it is on our Facebook page and it is in our bio on our Instagram page. It is a lot of fresh fruit, so that makes it a little bit of pricey. It is blackberries, lemons, lemonade, and tequila, basically. A little bit of sugar as well for both the blackberries when you make the puree and for the um, rim of your glass. And really delicious it doesn't even taste like alcohol which is the problem right well, at eight in the morning that's my kind of drink so <laughs> yeah it was i can't even taste the tequila and maybe i just didn't put enough in because i was going on the side of caution here <laughs> good lord well i think we're all going to try it tomorrow witnesses grad party so maybe we can record a little update see if we liked it or not <laughs> we're all drunk yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'll make a picture of it for tomorrow because i already made the blackberry puree and they do suggest you make that the night before, so I did do that last night to make it more like a set in the refrigerator with a little bit of sugar. Okay. And I guess the mocktail for today is coffee for the rest of us who are not drinking tequila so early in the morning. All right. So I think we're ready to get started with part two of the DC Snipers, right, Dave? That's right. It is the early evening of November 10th, 2010. It's a clear night. It's still warm as the coldness of winter has not yet set in. Just a few miles from Jarrett, Virginia, a crowd gathers at a Greensville Correction Center. They are family members of some of the victims of the DC snipers. Within a short time, John Muhammad will, has eaten his last meal and the crowd will be let inside. Behind these doors, which are normally closed to anyone outside of the condemned, where even if all the fluorescent bulbs on earth were used to eliminate the halls, it wouldn't change the fact that inside these walls is the darkest place, where the darkest people face the darkest consequences, the execution chamber. It's 9.02 p.m. and John Allen Muhammad is led into the room. He is asked if he has any last statements and he simply does not respond. He sat down on a gurney. He is strapped down. Then the curtains are pulled from the witnesses very briefly while the IV is put into place. At 9.06 p.m., the curtains were again spread. Shortly after, John Muhammad starts twitching. Then he goes still at 9.07. At 9.11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, John Allen Muhammad is pronounced dead. He is the oldest of the two men responsible for the D.C. sniper shootings. He was convicted and sentenced to death. The other man responsible, born February 18, 1985, would have been sitting right next to him had he been born six months earlier. But instead, he could actually be eligible for parole in just under two years from the airing of this podcast. 
While the overhaul likelihood of Malvo ever being released is pretty low, there is a chance, and as a, you would expect, he has certainly been doing everything he can do to increase his chances, as we'll talk about today. He's married, he's been working with a documentary, and his defense had filed the motion, but then they dropped it. That was to the Supreme Court. Basically, it was a motion to say he couldn't be given life without parole for something that he did before he turned 18. But in Virginia, the governor had actually changed a law basically requiring parole for all persons who were convicted of a crime they convicted they committed when, before, prior to turning 18 anyway, so the point was moot from oh, Virginia. that makes sense. I was kind of wondering when I was looking over what you'd written, you know, why they dropped it, so that's interesting. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad that we're going to talk about this because I feel somewhat conflicted over... Well, conflicted over the death penalty in general, but also over the death penalty as it relates to, you know, someone who was under the age of 18. So he cannot get the death penalty. And I wrote in my notes the name of the Supreme Court case. It's, oh, it, we'll, we'll cover it yeah. later. But yeah, because he was under 18, he cannot get the death penalty. Now, I personally, I, I think, I, I don't agree with the death penalty it's you know if killing people is your answer then you're probably asking a stupid question mm -hmm. but the amount of crimes that like later are not that they didn't they didn't do it it's too many for me to say that's okay you know what i mean it, yeah it's definitely i i believe that murder with malice and forethought a forethought rather should require life without parole that i have no problem with but killing people i'm not yeah I'm not comfortable with the government saying we're just going to kill people. Yeah. So. Yeah, I get I'm it. not either. So. Well, it would be one thing, in my opinion, if they just killed people who are guilty, but they just don't <laughs> kill anybody that their ridiculous court system convicts. Yeah, that's true. So if they put Muhammad to death and Malvo, I could be pretty happy with that, but what? the thousands of innocent people who got railroaded is different. Anyway, Dad, tell us, tell us the story. Oh, <laughs> um, so the story goes that in England at one time, they used to hang pickpockets, and it was done very publicly, and there would be thousands in the crowd watching, or hundreds was probably more accurate. And of course, you know what was going on in the crowd, pickpockets were pickpocketing <laughs> people on the ground. <laughs> so, you know, the idea of deterrence and things like that is just, you know, out the window, but... The other thing is you can't, unlike a life sentence, you can't take back the death penalty. Yeah, exactly. And just recently, we, we had some discoveries DNA-wise that we, we probably executed some innocent people. I can't remember exactly what the number was, but in the around 2000, they had done DNA, because DNA is now becoming available, examinations of a lot of people who had been convicted of rapes, and it was close to, it was more than half of them were found to be not guilty, and actually a Republican, I believe in the state of Indiana, or governor, said, we're not doing the death penalty in the state then. Good. Okay, so, yeah, so, like I mentioned, the likelihood of Malvo ever being released is low, and I think we should emphasize that, but he will try, and his positions for release will primarily center around two arguments. The first is that he was horribly abused, and the second is that he was brainwashed by John Allen Muhammad. Now, let's 
talk about this because people can be brainwashed. We've seen this throughout history, and many Germans were indoctrinated from very young ages into Hitler's very psychotic, anti-Semitic theories. And at the time, Joseph Goebbels had control of the press in Germany. So you got all these news reports, too, and it was the only thing being reported in the news were these bizarre anti-Semitic articles about what the Jews were doing to the Germans, and it was constant. But we will still hold Nazi war criminals accountable, just as we will still hold uh, people accountable who were members of cults, such as the Charles Manson cult. Well, what about Patty Hearst? Is mm. she held accountable? I, I would have to look. Yes, she was. She was. She was held accountable, and she lost. uh, That case was lost by Patty Hearst. You're talking about the bank robber? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was taken hostage, and then she was brainwashed. She had Lee Bailey. She had the best lawyer around, Lee Bailey, at the time. Uh, And that was their defense, that she had been, uh, you know, with the Stockholm Syndrome and what Mm -hmm. have you, been brainwashed. And they lost. She was found guilty. Look it up. Now, now, you know, brainwash is definitely a thing, and, you know, you could be brainwashed by someone else, or you, you know, you can be brainwashing yourself, because, you know, you're always listening to your self-thoughts, your own thoughts, and what you're telling yourself, and you can brainwash yourself into thinking things, so. Yeah, and it's important to remember that, you know, not everybody who, for example, if you look at the Nazis, you know, a lot of them, yes, they were brainwashed, but Heimler, Heimrich Himmler was a pathetic sleazebag long before he ever met sure. Adolf Hitler. So, I mean, y- y- the brainwash defense to me only goes so far because you still have the ability to know right from wrong. You still have the ability to make concrete decisions as to whether or not you're going to partake participate in something mm-hmm. yeah so. yeah i think davy the the difference between like nazi germany and the people of nazi germany and somebody like patty hearst is in one case you're talking about an individual mm-hmm. right being brainwashed by whatever forces but then you're talking about like in a nation mass hysteria you know yeah um, Trump voters, you know, essentially. But yeah, I, I don't. I think an individual has a lot further to go to use that as a defense. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you know, these things are like when we talk about legal insanity. It's important to note that that's a hard threshold to cross to actually sure say isn't. I'm legally insane. But mitigating and also aggravating factors are considered when a person is sentenced so the judge is supposed to look at the whole picture judge is supposed to look at what was this person's background but they also have to look at the cruelty of the crime they have to look at you know what was really the motive here and it's like these people never even met lee boyd malvo and that he had shot so the cruelty has to be taken into consideration and just the randomness and the you know desire to just kill as many people as possible all those things also have to be taken into consideration so i think that's a great point david because that's where it kind of gets me on him that he he didn't even choose these people for a reason he chose them for no reason you know yeah and it was just you know it was We'll talk a little bit about the motives, too, that are theorized. There's a lot of theories as to what motivated these two people. But 
And we don't really know for sure exactly what was the real motive here. And we'll also talk about how Lee Boyd Malvo has kind of changed from, you know, at times being fully accountable to at times trying to limit his involvement. And I think that shows a lack of remorse, honestly. So, but we'll talk about that too. But let's talk about the life of Lee Boyd Malvo, who was abused as a child, and his mother was the abuser. She was physically abusive during his entire childhood. And we know that this abuse obviously took place in his school years, but it's very likely as a baby and a toddler that even if when he wasn't being abused for things like crying, he was probably ignored. Psychological studies on that particular, those particular experiences have really shown that this can be extremely detrimental to a person. That before their ability to, you know, develop a spoken language, you know, they're hungry so they cry. If they're just let to sit there, they don't develop that sense of safety in the world. That yeah, they, they actually call it attachment hunger, yeah. Yeah, so... It's important to note that, you know, his abuse is terrible. We're going to talk about that. And, you know, it's also important to note, though, just kind of side point, is that the overwhelming majority of people who are sitting in prison today had very traumatic experiences as children. So many grow up in desperate areas where there's a lot of violent gangs. They join them for protection, not necessarily because they want to. So it's like, you know... These all are mitigating factors that you might consider in sentencing, but you also have to see the whole picture, too. So, I would also say that there's also a lot of people in society who are not in jail who have been abused. So. That is very true. So, yes, it's like it kind of both ways. You know, you, just because you were abused as a child does not mean you're automatically going to grow up to be a killer. Right. And just because you grow up in, you know, parts of Los Angeles or wherever does not mean you will automatically be a gang member, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Then why does it always come up as, as part of someone's reasoning for doing things like this? I, I mean. Why does it always come up? Yeah. Like, oh, he was abused. A, he was ignored as a, a child. No, it is a mitigating factor. It doesn't mean you're going to get off because of it. But as David said, the judge takes that into consideration. Hmm. So it is. I mean, you know, these sort of things can cause some people to be more likely have a proclivity toward crime. But it's not an excuse because, like you say, you know, there's a lot of people with horrible abuse stories who've never committed a crime. Yeah. It's the excuse that a lot of rapists give for the reason why they attack women. It's because of their mom or things that happened or, you know. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the life story. Lee Boyd Malvo was born February 18th, 1985 in Kingston, Jamaica. He is the son of Una James and Leslie Sam- Samuel Malvo. Leslie was a construction worker, and he often worked off the island and is absent for long periods of time. Yuna, at the time, works as a seamstress. She is known to be extremely short-tempered. She's also convinced that Leslie is having relationships with other women. 
And there are several stories about Yuna being extremely violent towards Leslie when he does live with them, including one story where she apparent she was uh, allegedly chased him with a machete around the street. So she's obviously a very sound-minded person. Seems reasonable. You know? <laughs> so after she chases Leslie around with the machete, she's also still convinced that he's having an affair. So she wakes up Lee one morning very early, tells him to pack up his bags, and she puts him on a bus and they go to Endeavor, Jamaica, leaving the father behind. As far as anyone can tell, there is no evidence that the father would ever try to even figure out where they were or where his son was. He's like, yeah, don't care. Yeah, well, I think I'd feel that way, too, if somebody chased me around with a machete. So. <laughs> They're like, oh, you want to leave now? Great. Miss <laughs> yeah. you, love you. <laughs> so, and now she's going to come, the mother's going to be in and out of the picture. She'd often leave Lee Malvo for days at a time with various friends, and she would be claiming that she was out doing you know, work, odd jobs normally in nearby towns. But when she would return, she'd almost never have any money. And if she did, she'd always spend it on alcohol. And the physical abuse at this point is very extreme. Lee is hit with belts for little, if any reason. If he asks anything about where his father might be, he's beaten pretty severely. If Lee sends him, if his mother sends Lee on an errand and she does not think he... Uh, completed the task fast enough, he'd be beaten with belts. Psychologists would also testify in one of Lee's hearings that in order to cope with this abuse, what he decided to do as a coping mechanism was to learn to be fully compliant. And that's one of the responses to, to that abuse victims might take. Of course, it doesn't really reduce the frequency of the abuse, but it's almost like he's living in a trance state, this kid. He's a very small kid. And according to people around him, you know, he's really basically not making any of his own, like, kind of decisions. So this will be used as kind of, you know, when Malvo took, Muhammad takes this position, you know, the kids already learned to be completely subservient to an abuser. So that's going to be part of their thesis as to why he should someday be getting out of prison. Is, is that on top or on bottom? We'll talk about that. <laughs> so according to people also who live around Malvo, and I've seen this at a couple places, they say he has developed another coping mechanism, which is killing small animals. His favorite target seems to be cats, and he likes to kill them with slingshots. Jesus. So, the, one of the reasons I bring this up... Now I changed my mind. Let's execute the bastard. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I bring this up, when you look at mass murderers, this is one of the most common early symptoms. You know, Ted Bundy did it. Jeffrey Dahmer was really into it. You know, he liked to play with roadkill and everything. So this is a common symptom of somebody who's going to grow up to be a mass murderer. They like to torture and kill animals at small ages. So I read a book once, David, that talked about how we start with animals so you can control them a little more so they can get good at it before they try to human. You know, it's like, almost like practice. And have they done a, done a study as to how many surgeons have did this to animals? <laughs> I don't know of one, but did you have a bad experience with a surgeon, Steve? Like, 
go in for like a you know minor thing, come out with a circumcision yeah. that you didn't expect. Or... Where is it? There was some news actually this morning about some guy who had the wrong leg amputated. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> wow, well, yeah, you know what they said? Didn't have a Lakers hand on. Because <laughs> then they have to go and amputate the right one. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, shit happens. Huh? <laughs> that was exactly what the doctors put in there. <laughs> Doctor, please don't remove my squirrely nuts. <laughs> okay. And back to the story. Okay, so... <laughs> When Lee is 11, his mother's going to move again. They move to Antigua to this little shack, and there's no water or electricity. But that doesn't bother his mother because his mother barely stays there. She'll leave for weeks and at one point months at a time. At a time. And one point, Lee threatened to kill himself in front of his mother, and she beat him very severely. And then she leaves for... Eight months, and she leaves him with no money or even any information on where she's gone, whether she's even coming back. And so Lee basically is surviving by begging and salvaging and stealing scraps of metal and electronics, which he would sell on the streets. His mother returns. Lee is nearly 15, and... The mother is really obviously not interested in having him around, but she seems to have run out of other places to stay, so she goes back to the shack. Then she's selling drinks on the streets, and she hears about a man who has come into the area who might be able to sell her some fake documents that she could use to enter the United States. The man's new to Jamaica. His name is John Allen Muhammad. Now, John Allen Muhammad's a man from New Orleans. He was at one point in the military, active duty until 1979, then served in reserve duty in the National Guard. In 81, he married his first wife, Carol. They had a son named Lindbergh, but John gets into some kind trouble. What fucking name is Lindbergh for a kid? Yeah. <laughs> That's I, weird. Have you never heard name. of Charles Lindbergh? No, I did, but would you name your kid Lindbergh as their first name? If, if Charles Lindbergh was a hero of mine, I suppose. I don't know. Why wouldn't you he name him Charles? Hero, you know? Yeah, why wouldn't you go with Charles then? <laughs> Well, they used to call well, Lindbergh yeah. Lucky Lin They used to call Lindbergh Lucky Lindy, you know, so. His last name, well, never mind. <laughs> we're you really going close. to places today. Yeah. Never mind. So, anyways, John does get into a little trouble at times in the military. One was a little bit serious, which was striking a higher-ranking officer. However, he does not end up, <clears throat> excuse me, getting dishonorably discharged. 85, though, he moves in with another woman and Carol and him would get divorced and he would then join he would leave the guard and go into the army and at first he'd dispute the custody of his son Lindbergh but once he decides to marry his second wife Mildred he's basically like yeah whatever <laughs> kind of you know expert parenting yeah <laughs> so now, Mildred and him have three children together, and it, 
John is doing all right. You know, he's a mechanic in the military. Then he starts to fix cars in his yard as like his own side business along with being in the military. So he's not bringing in a huge amount of money, but when you combine his military service with this little mechanic stuff that he's doing on the side, you know, they're they're doing all right financially. But then he goes into Desert Storm, and although he gets promoted up to sergeant, he will, when he returns home, his wife Mildred says he is extremely changed. And she says that one night, John describes what sounds like a code red had been done to him. She gives a PBS interview. We'll put a link to it in the thing. She says that one night John tells her that a smoke grenade had been found in her nearest tent and his higher ranking officers decided John must have tried to commit suicide. So they basically bondage him up so he's immobile. And they leave him for days blindfolded, immobilized in some town. I've heard of... It's a good way to treat people who are suicidal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have heard of this type of thing being done by the CIA, too. If you ever read the Family Jewels documents where the CIA releases a you know, report on all the things that they had done in the 60s that they think could possibly have been illegal. One of them involved, there was a man trying to enter the U.S. from Russia, who they decided must have known Lee R.V. Oswald very well. So they kidnap him when he gets into the States, and they tie him to a cot for more than a month, and the man cannot move at all. So they, like, completely immobilize this guy because he won't talk about Lee Harvey Oswald. Of course, he doesn't even know who that was. So he's, like, giving them their, his best guess as to who this guy might <laughs> be while crazy. he's being tortured and tied to a cot. They think that's possibly illegal. They're not sure they'll get possibly. back to us. They'll get back to us. Yeah. <laughs> so... At any rate, it does sound like there is a possibility that the war and the Code Red may have definitely been some of the contributing factors to what happens with John's brain. But his wife definitely says he is much different when he gets back. And he becomes pretty abusive towards her, not necessarily always physical, but he's very threatening to her. He is, you know, if she asks for anything, he gets very angry. And he's basically got this poor woman uh, scared out of her mind. So she tries to get friends and family to help, but, you know, they're kind of like, what are you talking about, you crazy bitch? There's no marks on you. <laughs> you know, you're not abused. And she's actually written a book called Scared Silent, which, you know, is probably a very good read. I, I just ordered it myself. I haven't gotten a chance to read it. But watching our NPR interview, she definitely, she's a very intelligent person. And she was definitely in this horrible situation where, you know, she is clearly a victim of abuse, but no one will listen to her. <sighs> And so eventually, she does have a friend who we'll talk about a little later, who does support her and encourages her to file for divorce. John one night enters into her room. She wakes up. It's the middle of the night. She wakes up. John's standing over her, just looking down at her while she's sleeping. And he says to her, you are now my enemy. And as my enemy, I am going to kill you. Then he walks out. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. she ends up getting a restraining order, but they have not yet made a court 
order on custody of the children. So John can still pick up the children certain days, and he picks them up from school one day. He's supposed to bring them home at 5, but he never does. He kidnaps them and goes to Jamaica. Wow. So That's crazy. Now, so John's down there in Jamaica. This is where we're Lee Boyd and John basically rendezvous. And Lee, who is desperate for a father figure, sees John as a good father. Now, by all accounts, John was never that bad to his children, at least not in front of people. So Lee's seeing like a father figure. And Lee almost immediately becomes very infatuated with John. And John reciprocates this. John spends a lot of time with Lee Boyd Malvo. He teaches him to play chess. You know, he's teaching him sports. He's even encouraging him to get to school, stuff like that. And, of course, he teaches him how to shoot guns. So, you know. But Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you, 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 who doesn't teach their kids, you know? <laughs> This is how you take a machine gun. <laughs> John will end up providing Yuna with documents to get into the United States. She goes to Florida and leaves Lee Malvo with him. Now, it's not clear if there was a money arrangement or not. Uh, I couldn't find that. Or if it was just like, hey, I'll give you my kid if you give me this <laughs> document. Oh, um, as in the Muhammad guy paid for Malvo? Yeah, like, basically. Yeah, because yeah, I don't see how... Because she sells, basically, soda at this point. And she's run out of friends who are going to let her stay yeah. just randomly at their house, it sounds like. like. A crazy lady. Yeah, I mean, you know, usually when you're, like, a guest at somebody's home and then you chase them with a machete, they get... <laughs> it's like, it's considered rude. Well, you know? Sounds kind of like Christmas uh, with our family, but whatever. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I kind of thought that was what Jamaica was like. I thought that was standard practice. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone running around with machetes. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm not certain if she actually did have some money somewhere and she gave him or she just left Lee with them. But so Lee goes to live with John and John is spending an enormous amount of time with him. And now, not long after, Muhammad and Malvo will go back to the States themselves. And they're going to stop in Florida briefly where uh, Una James resides. And then the whole trio, Una James, John, and Lee, are going to go to Washington State together. Now, that was where John had resided prior to leaving to go to Jamaica. Then James, uh, Una James and Lee Boyd Malvo are picked up by immigration and arrested. Both would end up being fingerprinted, which, of course, we learned... Last week, there was the fingerprints taken by immigration that actually were able to pin Lee Boyd Malvo. Guy, yeah. yeah. And the reason they were able to pin Lee Boyd Malvo to John Muhammad is because John Muhammad's the one that's going to bail out Lee Boyd Malvo. Oh, that makes sense. So, and now John is basically Malvo's is, uh, father. Oh. Well, no, he's not his bitch. He's. <laughs> He's much different. Darn. And at first, he is acting like a normal father would act. He gets Lee Malvo enrolled in school. He's kind of like, you know, your homework done, those kinds of things. He's acting like a parent. But, you know, he, John also has his other three children, too, still. And he enrolls them in school. And they're all enrolled under fake names. But doesn't take Washington State very long to figure out who the three children 
are the children he kidnapped. That's interesting. So Mildred gets her kids back. And this apparently is what really infuriated John, like beyond control. She even says that he chased her in the actual courthouse. Jesus. So, and her lawyer's like, you better get out of this area. Yeah. She's like, you know, you can file a restraining order, but it's not a magic spell. Right. Um, so he's running around the courthouse chasing her? He apparently chased her in the, inside of the actual courthouse. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like, funny. that's a real crazy, because... You know, you can <laughs> really run around the room. <laughs> well, no, like you know, you I'm go picturing and, Benny Hill. <laughs> yeah, you go, get you. I, I mean, the hallways of the court, like as they're leaving. I mean, do courts have like police officer oh, yeah. type people there? Did Everywhere. he get arrested? Oh, he didn't get arrested though. That's the interesting so thing. But like yeah, there's every day. Oh. So you're allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, but only one way to find out. <laughs> yeah. Next so. time I'm in, in court for some <laughs> offense that I've committed. Or, Steve, when they catch you for that murder, you're going to commit. There you go. Yeah. yeah, let us know. Yeah. So. But, yeah, according to Mildred, he as they were they were leaving the court, he started to chase her. And, Jeez. you know, they managed to get her away. But And then her lawyer's like, you know, all the restraining orders in the world aren't going to help you right now. You need to get out of this area and not let them know where you are. So she leaves and goes into the D.C. area, and all he can find out is that she's somewhere near D.C. Wow. Good so. for her lawyer to say that to her, though, because a lot of times they're like, just get a restraining order. Yeah. But, you know. It's like, yeah, against this guy, he doesn't apparently doesn't care if you're willing to run at somebody or be threatening in any way inside of a courthouse. Yeah. You Although obviously don't like care. They cared. The courthouse people cared either, but whatever. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I, I think part of that might have been, you know, just the kind of sexism, the kind of, you know, and the yeah, racism. Yeah, this is when in the 90s? 2000. The early, this okay. would have been right around 2000. <laughs> it was 10 years ago. Yeah, I know. 20. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just yeah. I'm trying to put it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and this is where Muhammad's teachings of Malvo are going to become extremely bizarre. So, Malvo is still attending school, and he's actually doing fairly well in his classes, according to teachers and whatnot that have been interviewed. I'm sorry, wait one second while I put this together in my brain. It's early, so that's what's taking so long. (laughs) But, he's, they've discovered that he's kidnapped and enrolled into the school three kids. That are his kids. Oh, so that's why he gets, it's not like a criminal offense or anything like that? Yeah, no, it was at most going to be like custodial interference. Oh, So because they never had really a custody decision. But, so, but then they don't question, like, well, who the fuck is this other kid that you enrolled in school? And, uh, not that I could find. That's like, yeah, isn't it? they were, like, not that interested in this other Jamaican kid. So, <laughs> just, like, ah, I get it. You know, just keep them going. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. mm. yeah. I mean, you know, I think, you know, I think a lot of people might take this the wrong way, but I do think the courts would have treated this 
differently had this been a white family. Yeah, How no kidding. <laughs> so, you know, but this is a black family. This is a Muslim family. And we all remember how Muslims were being treated around the time of 9-11. Yeah, absolutely. So I being think... chased with machetes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... Although still they don't have the right to just invent children. But whatever. <laughs> yeah. So Lee Here's Malvo <laughs> is going to school in the Washington area. He's doing okay. He's actually a very good artist. He draws a lot of pictures. You can see online they are very twisted, many of them, but he is definitely a capable artist. And he doesn't get in trouble. You know, he turns in his assignments all on time. He doesn't, you know, not late to class, anything like that. Well, you said that his coping mechanism is to be compliant. Subservient. Right, yeah, yeah and subservient, so. So, but when he gets home, this is where Muhammad starts really training him to be a psycho. So, Muhammad's stolen a Bushmaster from a gun shop, so... And that's some kind of gun. Yeah, yeah it is a type of gun. I was going to yeah. say a weed whacker? What's going on? Uh, no. Yeah, I was thinking something yeah, more it's a type Once you of, said gun uh, shop, all right. Has been used in a lot of mass killing. Yeah, it's a high-powered rifle. And so he's now teaching Lee Malvo to be a shooter. And keep in mind, John Ma- John Muhammad is an expert marksman himself. He was in the military. He was an extremely good shot. So whether Malvo is aware of it or not, Muhammad must be planning that Malvo will be the shooter in any type of these situations that I think Muhammad is already planning. Because when you really think about it, if Muhammad wants to be the shooter, it would make more sense just to teach Lee how to drive a car. <laughs> You know, because it's a lot easier to teach somebody how to drive a car. There's a lot less questions about why are you teaching this kid to drive a car than it is to teach somebody to be a shooter at the level that he teaches Lee to be a shooter at. Lee becomes, you know, not just somebody who can fire a gun, but somebody who can, you know, basically from long distances hit somebody right between the eyes pretty much. Wow. So, you know, he develops sniper level talents with the guns. And he is also putting him on these weird diets. And at one time, he actually has him on a diet where the kid is only allowed to eat crackers and honey and drink water. Somebody who goes on a lot of random diets, like that, that one doesn't sound too bad. Oh, it doesn't. <laughs> that will be our next diet, right? <clears throat> Crackers, honey, and wine. And Malvo's defense will also point out that he makes Malvo play violent video games a lot. I think this is irrelevant. But they also say he makes him watch The Matrix more than a hundred times. Now, Hmm. I I want people to know that uh, most Keanu Reeves movies are actually perfectly safe to watch repeatedly. You will not become insane if you watch, you know, The Matrix or Point Break. However, if you were to watch Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, oh, which that's is a good movie. That, that is the second worst sequel in no, history. No, that's a brilliant sequel. No, oh, that yeah. is the worst sequel. No that, way. No, Clerks Steve brainwashed you. Yeah. <laughs> Clerks 2 is the worst sequel. Okay. But, no. Bogus Journey, it's awesome. Bogus Journey was horrible. It's very creative. And the writing, well, not the writing, but the... the, the, (laughs) Don't tell me you like the soundtrack that features, like, Mark Slaughter and Kip Winger. Oh, I don't care. No, but the... (laughs) I, I think the way they went about the story was pretty cool and very uh, creative. I haven't seen it. 
Mm. I'll have to see it. They go through the levels of hell and everything. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I think if you watch this particular Keanu Reeves movie more than five times, you actually might become a serial murderer. Steve, mm-hmm. how many times have you seen it? 50. Oh, boy. Um, Vermont's going really to in trouble. You're not going to New Hampshire. You're going to Vermont. Vermont, that's right. Sorry, New Hampshire. Maybe next year. Maybe he'll end up at Fall River. Steve will be like, I'm buying a house in Fall River. So, anyways, yeah, so part of their defenses has always been, like, he watched this movie more than a hundred times. Is like, that would make you really bored, probably. Yeah, um, and the other thing I was thinking <laughs> when you were talking is, like, two things. One is, you sometimes you watch the same movie over and over, like, obviously Steve does. <laughs> but, you know, like, with kids, like, how many oh, yeah. bazillion times did we see The <laughs> yeah. Lion King, you know, or freaking yep. something like that? Wizard of Oz, huh? Yeah, okay. Dad watches the Wizard. <laughs> That's a different like, generation. That's a friend of Dorothy's. Anyway, yeah. Well, no, um, he he does that thing where you you know you can sync it up with the dark side of the moon. <laughs> but the other thing is, like teenage boys, I don't know how much you have to force them to play video games. Like, no. you you really no. don't. No, no, you don't have to force your teenage boy to play video games or look at pornography. Yeah, so. there's no arm twisting required. So this doesn't feel like. A truthful, you know, I was brainwashed and he made me play video games and he wouldn't let me do my chores. And, you know, like, 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 this sounds like something Jesse would be telling us. I was thinking Leilani when she used to blame people for all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Daddy won't let me eat. (laughs) She used to get mad at Craig and call me. Dad won't let me eat. She loved to rat people out. It was hilarious. (laughs) For real and imagined crimes. Mm. But still, so like if this is the only hypnosis or brainwashing defense, like I ain't buying it. You know, yeah, I, mean, I, I hate The Matrix. I actually think that's a really shitty movie and I might go a little nuts watching it a hundred times, but. So I've always been of the opinion, like I'm not one of those people that loves The Matrix. Like some people, they just love that Uncle movie. Bruce loved it. Yeah. yeah. And so like I, I shared with him the love for, oh. I can picture them. You know, the the, the Monty Python. Oh, yeah. You Kurt know. likes that, too. Yeah, like, people who love those movies love them, mm-hmm. and people who hate them are like, why would you even watch that? Yeah. You know, yes. like, and then, like, we we Monty Python lovers, like, after you tell us we you how much you hate the movie, we'll, like, usually to pick a quote from it. Yes, you, know, you like, guys start to act it yeah. out. I've seen Craig and Christina go, oh, we got any coconut? <laughs> so is there so, any other, though, like evidence of brainwashing like anything else that they pointed to? no i mean well you know it's just a constant telling him you know you're going to be a soldier you're going to be a killer you're going to be part of this new army we'll get into like lee claims that they believe that they're going to form their own nation oh i remember this from last week in canada Canada. (laughs) yeah you know it's like going to be like canada jr (laughs) it's like i don't know um (laughs) This one's with snipers. You know, it's like, to be fair, the Canadians probably wouldn't notice if somebody formed a nation inside their nation. Just mm-hmm. put them up north of the polar bears and things will get worked out. Mm-hmm. So that's what Lee claims. And, you know, I, I honestly, I, I just... It just I, doesn't seem yeah, kind of like enough. Like when you think about brainwashing that would make somebody go out and 
commit a crime like this, like, I feel like their eyes would have been taped open and, you know, like, deprived of sleep or food or water, you know, like, taken to an edge and then reprogrammed. I think think brainwashing is probably the wrong word for this. It's more like... Conditioning. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, the guy's already susceptible. Yes, exactly. And he's willing to do it subconsciously. So it's just a matter of bringing that side out out on him. Yeah, maybe. And when he's... Especially when he's admiring Mohammed, and he makes it a lot easier. Yeah, and and obviously because he's never had a father figure, he loves the idea of now having a father figure. And you know, John Mohammed is, you know, he at first acts like a father figure with this kid. So that's giving him. It's like you know, you go to school, you come home, or your your homework done. Yeah, well, all right, go get your football. Let's go out into the park. You know, so he's doing those things that are making Lee attached now to a father that he never had. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you guys have had kids. They do anything to please you, right? So, my kids are kidding me. I can't even get them. Except for the dishes. Well, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Good lord. So. They'd do anything to like take my money. (laughs) (laughs) So, but now the killings are gonna start. So, and then the other point of the brainwashing is it's really not that long of a period because we're right now just in February. You know, they come up here around uh, December time. So it's only a couple months, you know. You know, John Muhammad is going to give Lee a new test. Many of Mildred's friends, that's John Muhammad's first wife, just as a reminder, and neighbors were dismissive. No, that's his second wife, right? Yeah, it's his second wife. The three kids, right? Yeah. Okay. And many of her friends and neighbors were very dismissive of her pleas for help when she's being abused by Mr. Muhammad. Except for... One of her close friends that I said last week might have been her sister. She was not. They were like sisters, but they were not actual biological sisters. Her name is Isa Nichols, Hmm. and she encouraged Mildred to get the divorce in the first place. And as far as John's concerned, she was the one that's all, it's all her fault that that his marriage didn't work out. Had nothing to do with threatening to kill her, you know, so like, Some people, though, they do that, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's that that lady's fault. Yeah, so. you have to blame somebody. Yeah. yeah. So so John decides that he's going to send Lee Boyd Malvo to her house to kill her, and Lee knocks on the door. She's not home, but her twenty-one-year-old niece Kenya Nicole Cook was, and Kenya is killed, and thankfully Lee Boyd does not hear the baby because Kenya has a baby that was sleeping just in the other room. And thankfully, the baby didn't start crying because I think he would have killed the baby, too. Or or enrolled it into school. So. Or... <laughs> Taught it how to shoot. <laughs> that was... That was Mahomet. Yeah. Hey, Apple doesn't fall for our... <laughs> he, he might have brought it home to Mohammed so it could be raised to be and one of their... Because they're going to need more citizens for their country. That's true. Yeah. You know? And so, after doing this, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about how Lee has changed that story a few times, but after doing this, they take to the road, and they go to visit Muhammad's sister in Arizona, and this is where they'll commit their first long-range shooting. They're at a golf course near a sister's house, and there's a 60-year-old man named Jerry Taylor, and he's practicing, you know, his golf putting, I think they said it was. Yep, they putt, they chip. 
they putt, they chip, they they, they do all sorts yeah. of things. Yeah, I I don't play golf, so golf. Yeah, I I don't wanna be out like it's too much standing around waiting, you know, in the sun. That's no, fun. Thanks. Yeah, I like golf too. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> But anyways, apparently Jerry Taylor liked golf, and he was practicing when he is shot from a very long range in the chest and killed instantly. And That's a great spot for sniping, I tell you. <laughs> it's wide open. Yeah. Steve is inspired. <laughs> it's wide open, but there are also trees that you could, like, climb yeah, it's and hide in. It's, yeah. yeah, it's practice. Yeah, so. yeah. And there's, like, a flag next to like <laughs> you know you'd be like hole in one exactly <laughs> good point steve uh, yeah. yeah so <laughs> you could practice your short game and long game <laughs> so the killers are still on the road but they won't commit any murders for a few months that we know of okay so they begin however now committing robberies and murders for the most part and on august 1st in Hammond, Louisiana, man's outside of his store, and he discover comes out of his store like a just a shopping market, and he discovers one of his tires is flat in the parking lot, and as he starts to change it, young man comes up from behind and shoots him in the back of the neck. Now the man makes a very smart kind of instant decision, and he pretends to be dead. Hmm. So Lee Boyd Malvo starts going through his pockets, takes his money and whatever, and then leaves, and the guy is actually still alive, and he ends up surviving. That's amazing Yeah, that you could get shot through the back of the neck and live. And just pretend, like, be able to just play dead that still, because you have to be in tremendous pain. Yeah. So, I mean... It, or it, shock, maybe. Yeah. But still, you wouldn't think you'd have rational thought, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that he was able to do that and think and just come up with that off the top of his head, like, because mm -hmm. most of us aren't, you know, don't spend a lot of time thinking, like, what would I ever do if I was shot in the back of the neck by a random person while <laughs> yeah, no changing my tire? You know? Yeah. Wow. So, I'd probably be mad. Yeah. <laughs> You might be mad. Mm. I'd be upset with them too, but I mean, like, what the it, fuck was that? It's like, hey, you know, tell them they need to learn to better swear? manners. You could swear. Okay. It's okay, Steve. You are supposed to swear. <laughs> you know that. So, then on September 5th, a 55 year old pizza store owner named Paul LaRouf is locking up his restaurant in Clinton, Maryland. Now they're in Maryland. And they ambush him, and they shoot him six times at close range. They take his money, his laptop from inside the store, his restaurant, rather. It will later be discovered in the Blue Caprice, so we know for a fact that this was these two. Somehow, LaRufa miraculously actually lived, even though he took six bullets. It is. Unfortunately, our next victim will not. He was an Ethiopian. She was an he was, sorry, I couldn't remember if it was a he or a she. It's an Ethiopian immigrant named Million Wolderman, or I, I might be pronouncing that wrong. She was, he was helping his, one of his friends close the store, and he is fatally shot in the head and the back, and he would die very shortly after. Oh. 
So it's basically like they're looking for people who are closing up their stores and whatever. They'll shoot them, go into the store, take Hmm. the money, that kind of thing. That's basically what they're doing right now. So the motive here is probably robbery. Probably robberies, yeah. Yeah. Now they are going to go to Montgomery, Alabama, and this is the shooting that will eventually get them caught. So there are two people, Claudine Parker and Kelly Adams, who work at a liquor store. Claudine was 55, Adams was 24, and they were attacked by two men. One was using a handgun and the other was using a Bushmaster rifle. This Bushmaster rifle, the shot that was fired from it, would later be the shot that they basically matched to the sniper shootings. So So as the shots are fired, there's a police officer nearby who hears the shots. So he comes running in to help, and he sees a man standing over one of the victims holding the twenty-two caliber um, pistol. This would later also be found in the car, and it would also be ballistically proven to be the same gun that killed the... Ethiopian immigrant that we talked about earlier. So he chases a man that's holding the pistol, but he just can't quite catch him. Now, John Allen Muhammad is a very fast runner. He's very athletic. He's military trained. So he would have been a very hard person to for anybody to try and catch on foot. So Parker would later die, and Claudine Parker would later die from her injuries. Adams would thankfully survive. And as we mentioned, this would be the shooting that basically that they would start getting mad that the FBI's hotline doesn't take seriously when they bringed it brought it up. Yeah, so. so I have one question. So you said that there was a cop and he tried to chase Muhammad. Does tried that mean to. that Muhammad did that shooting? Muhammad was one of the shooters. So, so this they was were they were both okay. involved because there was the rifle and the handgun. Okay. So it sounds like it sounds like You know, just trying to piece together how these crimes take place. It sounds like most of the time they're looking for singular victims. Right. Like it's easier just kill one person, go and steal the place. But in this case, there were two people, and for whatever reason, they probably figure, well, it's two women, we'll easily go just kill both of them, and we'll both be involved. Yeah. The next victim was a Korean immigrant. Now, this takes place in Baton Rouge. So they're kind of going all over the place. This woman was walking to a store. Her name was Hong M. Bollinger. She was 45 years old, married to a U.S. serviceman, and she was shot in the head and killed instantly. Just a few weeks after this, the Beltway shootings will start, which we talked about next week. So in total, the two are responsible for 27 shootings, including... 17 killings and wounding 10. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. After they were arrested, too, Muhammad also says that, not Muhammad, um, Lee Boyd Malbo would actually claim that there were an an additional four shootings, and I couldn't find any sites that have given them, like, a specific credit, so it's not clear as to the police look into that and say it's just not true Mm -hmm. or... So, don't really know, but... So, at minimum, they killed 17 people, they wounded 10. At maximum, well, we don't know the maximum, but it could have actually been four additional shootings that they were also involved in. Two were fatal. So, they made it over 50%, so... (laughs) Passing grades. So, we talked about how they get caught and all that last week, so... 
when they are first caught, Leboid Malvo is basically treating this like it's a big game. It's a big joke. He is completely uncooperative. He'll mock prison guards, investigators. He'll be in court proceedings and just start drawing, you know, bizarre pictures or whatever. And he'll maintain this stance for the most part of the first trial. Now, the first trial of the pair will take place in Virginia, and basically Maryland hands the pair off to Virginia knowing they would be more likely to get the death penalty in Virginia. The death penalty does exist in Maryland, but it would not be given to a minor under any circumstances, nor are they known to use it very often. So while it's very possible they would have executed Muhammad themselves, they say, well, Virginia is far more likely to do it, so we're letting them do it. Their charges in their first trial was the killing of more than a per- more than three persons in the period of a month, which is apparently a charge. I didn't know that that was actually a specific charge. And then they were charged with the killing of the FBI analyst Linda Franklin that we talked about last week because this was under the terrorism statutes because she worked with the FBI. Right, and so, at that point in time, yeah, that was yeah. Like a huge deal. So they would face weapons charges, and they would both be convicted. Now, this is one point where a jury had to decide their sentences, and they decide death for Muhammad, but they actually do decide in the Virginia jury, says um, Lee Boyd Malvo should only get life without parole. So it's important to note that this was before, as mentioned, find the case name, before Roper v. Simmons. Now, this case will go to the Supreme Court in 2005, and it will end the death penalty for minors. So in the United States, since then, if you are under the age of 18 when you commit a crime, you cannot be executed. So, but... Most of these legal proceedings are taking place before Roper v. Simmons, and so at some point, Lee Boyd Malbo decides he's not going to chance things, and he's going to totally change his tune. Malbo's Mr. Cooperative, and he is going to tell them all about all these terrible things and how, how much remorse he actually has for them. So now, originally, now Malbo is going to actually seem maybe there's some sincerity because he'll say, you know, he was a shooter in all the DC sniper attacks. We'll go into a little bit more detail of that later, but I think that he is actually telling the truth here. And we'll, I'll talk about why in a few minutes. So he's going to end up testifying against John Muhammad. You know, they're basically, he's going to plead guilty and accept several life sentences from both Maryland and Virginia. So the overwhelming evidence in the remainder in all of these shootings is enough. But they're... It's also worth noting, because we'll talk about this uh, just a minute when we talk about like what could happen if he got paroled. He was actually never charged with some of these shootings. Uh, the one in Montgomery, Alabama, they just elected not to charge the two because while they have the death penalty and certainly use it, they at the time actually did not use it on minors. The same was the case in Washington and Arizona. So this is why they were never charged with any of those crimes. It was basically like, we want Virginia to execute these people, so we're basically handing it to Virginia. Oh. 
So, so and as we know, John Muhammad's death sentence was carried out in November of 2010. Fast, don't it, you think? It's very fast. It's unusual for a death penalty to get carried out that quickly. You know, Zokar Sarniev, I think is how you pronounce yep. his name, The will probably be at least a few more years, at least, you know, and... But his could end up being somewhat quick in comparison. I think the average is it takes about 15 to 25 years. Yeah, because they go through like a series of appeals. So did this Muhammad guy not... It no, doesn't, he didn't fight it. Yeah. He didn't fight it. Oh, well, I guess that in part makes he sense. He was a lot him. like, if you remember, McVeigh did the same thing. Oh, yeah, you're right. I guess I didn't remember that. So if they don't try to appeal it, they just accept it, which makes sense based on what you were saying last week is a lot of times spree killers, they assume that this ends in their own demise, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And it seems like Muhammad was just fine with that, you know? Yeah. It's really hard to say because... Even though he represents himself at one of the trials, he really doesn't say much of anything from the point where he's arrested. So he just, and like when he was asked, do you want to make a last statement? He doesn't even say no. He just ignores them. You know, it's just. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, he was not going to talk. He was not going to tell anybody, you know, why he did any of this. Just that was what he was, you know. Just his final douchebag moment. Yep. So, but Lee, on the other hand, has told us many stories. Some are the same, some are different. But let's talk about this because he could actually someday possibly be released. And what happened in Virginia is that they've changed the law that basically says if you are a minor and you committed a crime, you have to go before a parole board 20 years after the conviction. So I think it puts him in around 2000, late 2023 or mm-hmm. early 2024. He will go before a parole board. And just because you go before a parole board, mind you, does not mean you're getting paroled. Even if he did get paroled, he would still have life sentences in Maryland. And possibly, because there's no statute of limitation. So Georgia, Arizona, Louisiana, Alabama, and Washington definitely have murder charges that they could file on Lee Boyd Malvo anytime he's actually released. In addition, if you take the four shootings he also claimed responsibility for, that would also add California and Texas to that list. Yeah. So the probability is not of him ever getting out of jail is basically about the same as winning the lottery, pretty much. But he has some things that are going for him. One is that his social worker, who wrote the book The Making of Lee Malvo, certainly seems to promote the idea of him getting paroled. He also has found himself a wife. And she is a very wealthy woman. She is Sable Knapp. She is an heir to the Knapp fortune. Now, the Knapp fortune is basically property developers and power brokers. Apparently, they have a lot of properties named after them in places like Iowa and stuff. Oh, okay. So she's actually resides in Maine. She's a political activist. She is probably largely connected because she, if she's an activist and she's also wealthy, yeah. <laughs> she makes donations. Yeah. So she's got connections, more than likely and some very powerful ones. She also has probably people who know a lot about propaganda. 
that she's well connected with, which would explain the recent documentary that oh. Lee Boyd Malvo has been. So Lee Boyd is, for the most part, in almost like a solitary confinement, but he's given every week he can use a phone for about 15 minutes. It's not much that he's actually allowed to do. He can have very infrequent visitations, but I don't even think they're allowed to be like behind a glass. Like it's not even that close. Mm -hmm. So, but they apparently did allow him to have the wedding ceremony at the prison. However, she even got to know Lee Boyd Malvo. Sounds like she started writing letters yeah, to him for they whatever could have pen reason. Pals and shit like that. Yeah. Like, it's just bizarre. Like yeah. why like I think I'll write Lee Boyd Malvo a letter today, see how he's doing. It's like, yeah. what the fuck is the matter with you? It's like, Well, you didn't, know. and Dad may remember this more. Didn't Charles there, Manson has many. Yeah, letters. but didn't there used to be like almost like a, a thing where prisoners could ask for pen pals or something like that, <laughs> and papers and magazines? Was that a thing, Dad? It is a thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah even if you're a murderer, you can still have a pen pal. Yeah. yeah. I know of one woman I researched, it had nothing to do with these podcasts. Uh, for somebody I met in my part-time job, and she had killed her husband, but she actually had a little pen pal ad which said, you know, how wonderful she was and how smart and beautiful and all this and all that. Never mentioned the murder. But, yeah. yeah uh, I'm the nicest yeah, murderer you'll ever meet. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, no, they, they I, you know, I don't know what the rationale, I don't know if that's allowed everywhere, but I, I do know that you can do that. You, if you say pen pals, you know, in Google, mm -hmm. jail pen, pen pals, you'll probably get some hits. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I was just yeah. surmising that could have been how they met. Yeah, it's definitely very likely. I just never understood why anybody would want to be a pen pal with a mass murderer. <laughs> like, Same. like, you know, I could see like a celebrity. You know, yeah. yeah. Although maybe there's like, so obviously like we're different, but like a morbid curiosity, you know, like possibly maybe yeah. you or delusion, like you think you're going to get mm -hmm. them to say why they did it or, you know, something like that. Yeah. So, and obviously over these letters or whatever, and a very seldom phone call that he's allowed, they fell deeply in love. Oh. Oh, it's, it's such a, such a wonderful story. Carm. Kameda Albaris, which is the name of the social worker that I mentioned, she said in an interview, I was there for the ceremony. It was such a wonderful occasion. I'm very happy for the customer. They seem to be soulmates, and they're very happy they found each other. So I was intending to cover what's called folie adieu, which is a term used in psychology to describe when two people come together and create a third delusional person. But when three people come together to create a delusional person, that's called folie a choice. <laughs> Wait, so. Craig, say it in French. Folie <laughs> trois. Ah. <laughs> Sounds cooler. It does. It's usually a sexual thing, though. It's usually right. a sexual <laughs> thing. Okay, Dad. <laughs> Dad, this isn't a show about you. So actually, uh, well, how do you say the first one? Philia du? Philly. Philia du. Okay. So Philia. Oh, yeah. Philia du. Yeah, yeah Philia du would be when two people are involved with each other that have kind of a mental problems. But when they come together, 
they create almost a third mental problem, you know. And there's definitely cases like when you look at the Columbine shooting and stuff like that where it's even more apparent. In this case, I mean, there's probably some of that going on, but I think there's really just two psychos. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's like Two people so. with not enough shit to do. Yeah. And Malvo has done recent documentary, and I didn't watch the whole thing, honestly. He has hopes of pushing this narrative that he really, it's all John Muhammad's fault. He shouldn't be held fully accountable. It's, nothing's his fault. Obviously, to be fair, he had an extremely abusive childhood, and the level of control that John would have had over them would, would have been significant. But, yeah, so it, it, it's it's fair to say that most likely Lee Boyd Malvo will never commit a murder spree unless he meets John Muhammad. Doesn't mean he'd never commit a murder, but I don't think he'd do anything like this. That doesn't necessarily mean he's all of a sudden not responsible. Right. And, you know, one of the factors, the factors I would look at when somebody says, like, how responsible should he be, is how willing of a participant was he? And he was an eager participant. And does he have any remorse whatsoever? And while he claims he does, I don't believe him. I believe he has remorse that he got caught. I believe he has remorse for Lee Boyd Malvo, but I don't think he has remorse for anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> so I think he's, he feels very sorry for himself, you know, and that's really all I think. See, but there's other points. Lee Boyd Malvo was never instructed by John Muhammad, for example, to kill Kenya Cook. He was instructed to kill her aunt. When this young lady opened the door, she's clearly not old enough to be the target. Now he's changed his story too. At one point, he says he makes this remark to her and blows her brains out when she tells her that you know her aunt's not home. But now another story he has where he says, well, when she opened the door, I, I just thought it was her aunt and shot her right away and that kind of thing. I don't believe him. I don't believe you'd look at a 22-year-old and think that this is, you know, or 21. I can't remember if she's 21 or 22 when she was killed. But she's very young, and there's no way you'd think that this is the right victim. So he wasn't told to kill her. And he could have said, you know, oh, well, when's your aunt coming home? Right. And yeah. come back, you know. So, no, he took it upon himself to kill this young lady. And he did so because he wanted to. He wanted to impress John. That was his part of his reason. But he still wanted to commit the murder. You yeah. Know? And sure. I was just, well, I was actually trying to look for a photo of him. But I clicked on this article about him where he's testifying against Muhammad and basically says that he wanted to carry out phase two, which was where they were going to go to Baltimore, <laughs> Baltimore and kill yeah. pregnant women. Yes, they were like, trying going fuck? to. Yeah, so Lee Boyd Malvo says that there were three phases to this. Phase two would involve deliberately targeting pregnant women because they knew that that would really get people up in arms. Phase three, they would target a police officer and then they would line explosive at the area where the police officers would be going to the funeral and basically try and kill as many police officers as possible. It is disgusting. He also says that the whole idea was ransom. Now, I actually don't think that that's true. I think that what it probably was, was John Muhammad just wanted revenge. And he really wanted to kill his former wife, Mildred. But he just wanted revenge on the world. He's gone batshit, you know? He's, yeah. You know, he just wants to put 
people through as much pain as possible. And Levoid Malvo did not need a lot of, you know, encouragement to participate in this. And that's why I think he is just as responsible. So actually next week is Memorial Day and so we will be taking the holiday weekend off to spend with our families and have various fun times. But then the following week, basically like June 7th I think it'll come out, Steve will be covering The Lady of the Dunes, which is a story from Cape Cod. 